Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Oti Luova. I work as a university lecturer at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku, Finland, and I'm also director of the Finnish University Network for Asian Studies. Today, I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk with Abdul Ghaffar uh, Tobi Oshodi from Lagos State University in Nigeria. He holds a PhD in social sciences from KU Leuven in Belgium and works as a lecturer at the Department of Political Science of Lagos State University. The reason, reason why, I'm, why I'm interviewing him in this Nordic podcast series is that uh, he has received a Coimbra Fellowship for a two-month research stay at our center in Turku, uh, which we are really happy about. And in this podcast episode, we will talk about his recent postdoctoral research project that focuses on non-state actors and Chinese environmental footprints in Africa, a project that has been funded by Mirian Institute for Advanced Studies in Africa. China's presence in Africa has received a lot of attention, not only the various Belt and Road projects, but also the activities of Chinese private companies and illegal traders. The environmental impact of Chinese actors is also quite well documented, but what is less known are the responses of the non-state actors at the grassroots level. In this episode, you will hear about musicians and community activists in Ghana who have raised their voices to increase awareness of the environmental impact of Chinese legal and Ill- illegal activities in the country. Welcome, Toby. Well, thank you, Dr. Oti, for hosting me. Thank you. Uh, let's start with a broader question before going to the grassroots level. We have had the pleasure of following your visiting lectures here. And one topic that you have raised is the different academ- academic approaches to China's presence and influence in Africa that uh, scholars can be divided roughly into three categories, pessimistic, optimistic, and cautious uh, researchers. Can you describe these different approaches and how would you position yourself? Uh, Thank you. Um, I think the three, for me, the three main perspectives, you know, on China in Africa, you know, aims to you know, argue as to what the implications of China's presence will be for the African continent and for the African people. One extreme, you have the Sino-pessimist, you know, uh, scholars that tend to argue that what China is actually doing on the continent is recolonizing the continent. You know, colleagues have talked about recolonization by invitation, for instance. Others have actually talked about the capacity of China to de-industrialize African economy, in which case they argue that African economies are actually not prepared to compete with Chinese uh, manufacturing. So they argue, for instance, when a Chinese producer imports something, you know, like shoes, for instance, he or she can produce it at the rate of five USD. In Zimbabwe, as you know, Margaret Lee argued, you need like 24 USD to produce a single unit of the same shoe. So opening your economy to 
China, for instance, within that context, can actually run the local infant industries out of business, you know. So, but on the other extreme, you have those that actually argue that China in Africa is one of the best things that would happen to Africa in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And the argument is simple. Former president of uh, Senegal, for instance, tries to articulate this position when he said two hours meeting with the former Chinese president, Ujintao, was by far more useful than, you know, attending the G7 summit. And that is instructive. Others have argued that China in Africa is actually an alternative to the ITER to development equation where you had mainly US and European countries providing development finance, usually with conditionalities. So China is coming as a new player to offer its own alternative without necessarily talking about some of the conditionalities that the US, uh, Europe, you know, will talk about, for instance, democratizing, you know, your polity, liberalizing your, uh, your economy, and, and the, the rest of it. So they argue that China, you know, coming to the development discourse in Africa has actually been useful for the continent. But in between these two extremes, you have um, scholars that urge for caution. And I think I subscribe to that, which is simply to argue that China can promote development on the continent. But certain, you know, things must also be put in place. Uh, I'm not the only one, you know, with this perspective, you know, colleagues have argued about, you know, creating the institutions to ensure transparency. Colleagues have talked about, you know, the agency of African actors. In this, you know, talk, I would also be laying emphasis about the capacity of the non-state actors to actually serve as a check. So when you have a strong non-state actor, it allows, you know, China to be more ethical in its dealing with Africa. So, so simply put, those are the three um, perspectives to Africa-China relations or China in Africa, as some would like to have it. Yeah, and in fact, you just uh, led the discussion towards my next question, which is uh, about your current research project, the agency of, of, of African actors and the non-state actors. So, so, uh, so what made you choose the topic and approach? I mean, the title of your research is Non-State Actors and Chinese Environmental Footprints. So uh, uh, what's the kind of thinking behind this? Um, yes, there is a long and short story to why I was, you know, and I think I should mention it, this, the body of literature on Africa-China relations has really, in the last couple of years, expanded. You know, there is a lot of works out there. But I was actually interested in how non-state actors, because some of the papers, some of the researchers would actually look at state-to-state -state relationship. But I was quite, you know, interested in how people that are not part of government, people that do not, you know, hold political offices, people that are disconnected, how people that are not, you know, uh, running the state, how they imagine and engage uh, China on the continent. And I was interested in that for many reasons. One of the reasons is actually that long-term Chinese uh, relations with Africa 
would really need, you know, the support of non-state actors because non-state actors are actually in the majority. Those that actually run the state are in the minority in every case. So it was interesting for me how this majority non-state actors across Africa actually relates to um, China. But before that, I've also been interested in, you know, as a political scientist, I have been exposed to the literature on, you know, the African states. But I've also been exposed to the literature on the, you know, the fact that there is a lot of exit from the African states where non-state actors are actually playing the role of um, the state in many con contexts, whether it is about providing their own electricity, whether it is in terms of uh, uh, providing their own security, whether it is in terms of providing their own education, building their own roads and the rest of it. You know, so uh, the, uh, it is just an opportunity for me to bring that uh, earlier interest in non-state actors and connecting it to my ongoing you know, research interest in Africa-China relations. Yeah, you already mentioned the term points of exit, and, and I would like to ask you about the, the two key terms that you use in your analysis, points of exit and points of engagement. Can you explain why you selected these terms for your study? Oh, thank you. Um, in 2015, when I was working on, you know, the concept I actually traced to a paper, you know, the first time I used the point of exit and point of uh, engagement were actually uh, in a book chapter published, you know, in a book published in 2015. And the idea really was to understand what was happening, you know, in the uh, emerging Africa-China relations. And I noticed that two things were happening. On the one hand, you have African states increasingly looking forward to Chinese development finance whether it is in terms of infrastructure, whether it is in terms of, you know, infrastructure like uh, railway construction, airport building and rehabilitation, uh, whether it is in terms of, you know, um, te telecommunications, just you can talk about a lot of, uh, you know, Chinese presence in infrastructure, the provision of infrastructure. but. Along the line, you know, or within that context, increasingly it becomes difficult for, you know, African states to challenge China, you know, in terms of what China is doing on the continent. Because on the one hand, they need Chinese development finance. So it becomes difficult or challenging to, you know, actually call China out when you actually, you know, rely on Chinese development uh, support. And, you know, that, that understanding became deeper when, for instance, in the case of Nigeria, you know, members of the National Assembly in 2000 and I think 2021 uh, or thereabout wanted to investigate um, Chinese uh, loans, you know, and Chinese uh, infrastructure. And a serving minister actually publicly said um, uh, th this won't be a good thing to do because China can actually withdraw its development support if you know this probe goes ahead. 
the proof never happened. The same thing in the, you know, in the Ghanaian case that I will be talking about or that I'm, I'll be talking about in this uh, conversation was, again, a minister that publicly said, why should we, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, why should we arrest and, you know, and prosecute a Chinese citizen, you know, if we, a particular Chinese citizen, Aisha Wang, in Ghana, if we need, you know, Chinese development um, finance. So the, the idea really with these two illustrative examples is to demonstrate that African states are actually conscious of their situation, situation in terms of their, uh, you know, reliance or expectation of Chinese development support. And they don't want to irritate uh, uh, China, a country that has actually, if you, if you go to many places, you, you, you can actually see the development and infrastructural uh, development that China has actually offered from Tanzania, I mean, from Tanzania, you know, to Lagos, to Angola, you can actually see those things there. With this reality comes the second point that I talked about, the point of engagement. Because the state is reluctant, because the state is becoming increasingly careful of irritating Beijing, non-state actors are actually stepping in to draw attention and to actually challenge uh, China, Chinese activities, not only in terms of environment, even in terms of labor practices. So I've seen situations where labor union, worker union, you know, the media, um, artists, you know, coming out to engage in their own way Chinese presence on the continent. You know, whether it is about uh, labor union in Nigeria going to close, you know, picket a Chinese uh, company, or whether it is an artist depicting, you know, China-Africa relations in a particular frame. But you see these non-state actors actually coming out to really showcase and challenge Chinese environmental, you know, or uh, economic footprint. So it is within this context that the two um, concepts emerged and I've been trying to actually challenge the concept, make better sense of the concept, and also share the concept and get feedback from, uh, you know, the intellectual, uh, you know, academic colleagues as to how they think about it. Thank you. Yeah, you already mentioned that you are looking at several different cases in your study, but let's talk about the two cases uh, in your research. Uh, Galamsi and the Ababa coal plant. But can you first explain what Galamsi means? Um, well, Galamsi is, is a local term used in Ghana to, you know, it's the corruption of gather and sell. You know, it is the idea of mining for gold, small scale mining for gold. You know, it is something that has been, you know, in existence for quite a long time. You know, Ghana is referred to as the Gold Coast, you know, is rich in terms of gold. So Galamsi has been there, you know, with the locals, you know, picking gold. But 
The contemporary meaning of galamsey is that capacity of that small-scale mining for gold to not only generate, you know, the resource, gold itself, but to pollute the environment and destroy border water bodies along the line at, as it does. So, so that, that, that is simply, you know, the simple, Placed, you know, meaning of galamsey. Of course, galamsey is connected to other, you know, realities. But simply put, galamsey is gathering for, you know, small-scale mining for gold. You already mentioned the Chinese galamsey queen Aisha Huang, and she is one of the uh, central persons in the illegal gold mining business. So, how, how does her case illustrate the exit and the engagement pattern? Yes, thank you. I, you know, initially I talked about um, a minister publicly saying, why should we arrest and prosecute this lady, you know, in spite of our involvement in Galamsey. That demonstrates, you know, the point of exit, the state not wanting to, you know, go a particular route. But the interesting thing about Aisha Wang is that, um, she has earlier been arrested for galamsey. Somehow she was let loose. Also, she was deported from Ghana. Strangely, she find herself back in Ghana, you know, with the, with the Ghana card, which is, you know, the new identity system, you know, that Ghana is, Ghana just intro introduced. So it, it's been, it's, she illustrates actually in, a, in, a, in an interesting manner, you know, the points of engagement. And she's, she's actually, uh, you know, a subject of court process now because she has been um, arrested now again and she's being prosecuted. But that is only happening after several opportunities for the Ghanaian state to actually, uh, you know, uh, in, 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 you know, in a more meaningful manner, address our involvement in Galamsey. But then there is also these uh, local uh, actors, non-state actors, who, who, who raise uh, kind of concerns about her, her activities, for example, Stoneboy. Uh, yes, uh, Stoneboy is quite, you know, if, if you're Ghanaian, uh, I'm not sure what my Ghanaian friends would think about this, <laughs> but if you're Ghanaian, there are three um, popular musicians, you know, you know, that the average Ghanaian would, you know, always talk about. They are usually in the news, you know, for their music is just incredible. Their followership is unbelievable, you know, on social media. On the, you, you have um, Sakodie, you have Shatawali, and you have Stoneboy. But in terms of um, leading Ghanaian artists, Stoneboy's uh, redemic opposition to Galamsey actually is, you know, almost like a watershed moment in terms of non-state actors engaging Chinese environmental footprint because he actually, in, in his song, Greedy Men, he didn't, you know, withdraw the punches of what he felt about, uh, you know, Chinese presence in, 
the uh, you know con you know impact on the Ghanaian environment. In the four about four minutes um, song video, he unquestionably demonstrated and showcased China's involvement. Whether it is at the point of you know Chinese um, bribing chiefs, the local chiefs, to pollute the environment, whether it is in terms of you know, showing in the video the Chinese flag, whether it is in terms of also um, uh, showing again Sino Idol, which is a multinational Chinese um, company, he was he did not leave his audience in doubt as to what China, you know, is you know the Chinese environmental, what Chinese environmental footprint looks like, and the implication, and he also advances that you know. The solution to the problem is actually within Ghana. Also within Africa, you know, you see him in the pic, in the, in the video, using the symbolism of Kwame Nkrumah. You know, you see a small kid wearing the T-shirt with the inscription with the picture of Kwame Nkrumah. When you see Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah is actually about, you know, the Pan-African champion on the continent. So he was looking at Ghana addressing this issue, but he was also looking at Pan-African, a kind of Pan-African, inviting a kind of Pan-African response. So uh, I would say Stone Boy for me, you know, is, 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 is leading in terms of, you know, musical rendition against, you know, Chinese environmental footprint. But I must also mention that, you know, perhaps to demonstrate the strength you know, in terms of his conviction. Stone Boy actually is a brand ambassador to a Chinese uh, major telecommunication, you know, is, is techno ambassador. Techno, you know, has uh, arguably over 50% of the African market. So for you to have somebody that is a brand ambassador of a Chinese multinational on the one hand, on the other hand, Engaging with another Chinese multinational, Sino Idol, actually tells you uh, more about Stone Boy. And I would invite um, listeners to listen to the Greedy Boy and also make their own conclusions. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of adding the links to the Greedy Man YouTube video on our podcast uh, nice, page. Good. I really encourage our listeners to to watch and listen to the song. But then, the, and other interesting case is the Ababa coal plant. Why was that plant in the first place in Ghana? Um, yes, um, like a few countries in Africa, power, including South Africa, power is becoming a problem, you know, because as your economy expands, so will your need for energy, electricity. And Ghana is not, you know, it's actually worse in, in Nigeria, but Ghana is also no different because they are also increasingly being confronted by, you know, the challenge of electricity. You know, locally you hear things like doomso, 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 you know, you know, light out. So it was in a bid for government to respond to that challenge that it decided to explore, you know, the possibility of building a coal plant in Ghana to address, you know, the power problems that I talked about. But again, non-state actors actually made that dream not to happen. And it is for me interesting because you have a young 
interesting Ghanaian, you know, or a Ghanaian with Nigerian connection, you know, uh, probably. I think he's, he, he, one of his parents, you know, is Nigerian. So that was also interesting for me, being a Nigerian and going to Ghana to connect. So, but the idea was that uh, Chibize Ezekiel led, you know, a local response to that agenda of building a coal plant. When the news book, uh, Chibize, you know, adopted what he refers to as the submarine um, approach, where he went underground. Underground meaning reaching out to the community people, to the chiefs, uh, to, you know, local uh, opinion leaders, to ordinary people in Abobo, the, the, the area where the coal plant was to be built. Educating them, convincing them about some of the implications of coal plants. In doing that, he also conducted the research, and that is also an interesting because he was he's still a young person, but he was even younger at that point. But he conducted research looking at South Africa and what some of the implication of having coal mines has been to the community, you know. So he came back loaded with that information and sharing it with the people. The community people that Itato, you know, were looking forward to having that coal plant, you know, of course, it probably it would have generated some level of employment. But armed with, you know, the information he had and the approach, his strategic approach of engaging undercover the locals, he was able to get the trust, not only the trust, but the support of the locals. And when he shifted from the submarine approach to something that was more visible. It 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 became you know apparent that the deal would not go through, and it was you know shocking that at some point the government in Ghana, 2012, 2016, came out publicly to say no, we can't proceed with this. So that is one of the shining example of what um, non-state actors can actually force not only the host government but China to rethink about um, uh, its en environmental footprint. And it is interesting for me that uh, one of the you know partners that wanted to build the, um, the coal plant is actually leading the renewable you know energy you know solar energy in Ghana so you can see the transformation of what, what can happen when non-state actors actually come out to engage you know a country as huge as um, China as well as their own local government so it has a kind of double happy ending so. yes 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 <laughs> so yes. there's no coal plant and now now it's it's kind of uh, paving yes. the way for yes, yes. the import of Chinese green energy projects that's Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. But overall, your current project shows how complex the Chinese environmental impact in Ghana is, uh, with a wide variety of official and unofficial actors engaged in legal and illegal affairs. And now there is a new positive trend of green investments. And also, your research brings forth the multiple responses by various local state actors in Ghana. But when can we read the final outputs of your super interesting project? Uh, thank you. That's an interesting question that I, you know, it's, it's, it's a one billion US dollar question. But I think um, 
by this time next year, I should have added to the conversation about not only about Chinese environmental footprint, but about how uh, non-state actors have actually responded to it. By this time next year, you know, by middle of next year, I think like two academic articles should be out for me. But I think the research itself is actually um, uh, raising interesting and new questions that is actually forcing me to develop another research agenda, you know, as to Chinese environmental footprint. In the research, it's unquestionable that um, the, the, the perception of Ghanaians or those Ghanaians that are interviewed and from my uh, stakeholder mapping, you know, on major newspapers, in, in news media in Ghana, uh, Chinese environmental footprint is mainly located in terms of the negativities, you know, the pollution that Galamse is called causing, the implication of cycle, which is something we've not even touched, you know, the overfishing, you know, uh, fishing of smaller fish, you know, that should be breeding the next generation of fishes, if you like, the implication of that has not really been touched. So, but there is also, as you said, Chinese footprint, you know, in the solar and renewable energy. So it's something that I'm also thinking that in future I should dive deeper into that aspect. And hopefully maybe in the nearest future, there may, there may be a more comprehensive, a book project on, on that. Uh, you know, uh, going forward. Yeah, so we are recording this now in November 23, and yes. and so your next publications will be out in mid-24. Yes, or earlier so, than that, yeah, so I hope. Please put that into your calendar <laughs> <laughs> and check Toby's publications at that time. Uh, thank you for sharing with us your research. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Uh, I'm Aud Luova. Thank you for joining in the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.